Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Brendan Doherty, um, who is author of Fundraiser in Chief, Presidents and the Politics of Campaign Cash. This book was published by University Press of Kansas in 2023, and it's a really in-depth understanding and dive into presidents from Jimmy Carter to Donald Trump and the current um, campaign as well, uh, and exploring how presidents spend their time around campaign cash. Uh, which is not novel, but it is new, <laughs> at least the research. Uh, and so I would like to welcome Brendan to the New Bucks in Political Science podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this particular project. Hi, Brandon. So hi, Lily. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for all the good work you do on the New Books in Political Science podcast. It's a fantastic service to, to you know, Everyone who studies and cares about politics. So, uh, so I'm a professor at the Naval Academy, and I should say that everything I say here represents my views and not those of the U.S. Navy, the Department of Defense, etc. Um, and my teaching and my research focus on the American presidency and campaigns and elections. And for years, I have been really interested in the intersection of campaigning and governing. Um, how traditionally, when political science has looked at how presidents campaign, that has been separate from the study of how presidents govern. Uh, and I came to this project. It was um, it was an out- outgrowth of a previous project where I looked at strategic presidential travel. And I built an original data set of presidents traveling around the country to look at whether they favored key electoral college states throughout their terms in office and not just in the months right before election day. Uh, and as I did that, I found that presidents spend a lot of time fundraising when they're traveling around the country and when they're in Washington, D.C. Um, so I started noting fundraisers, coding fundraisers, coding who they were fundraising for. I came to realize that there were references to presidents fundraising behind closed doors and events that didn't make it into the public papers of the presidents, which is the official record of you know, pe- presidents' public activities. Uh, so I started digging for those, and one thing led to another. And I compiled a data set of the time presidents spend raising money for themselves, for their fellow party members, uh, starting with Jimmy Carter, who was the first president to be elected under the post-Watergate campaign finance system. And presidents have done me the favor of continuing to generate new data. Um, So the book covers up through President Trump, but I've continued the coding on through the Biden administration. And and this this sort of exploration of you know campaign finance and and time spent raising money not just for themselves if they're running for election or re-election say but also for um, other candidates for House speakers and Senate Senate senators and um, not House speakers House members there's been a lot about the speaker recently it's in my brain um, but also governors you talk about and state houses but before we get into all of that um, Watergate was a watershed time with regard to restructuring how 
campaigns are funded. Can you just do a little bit of a overview of what happened then giving you the opportunity to move forward from Carter to the present? Gladly. So thank you. It's a, it's a great question. So when people think of the Watergate scandal, they understandably think of the break-in of Democratic National Committee headquarters for which the scandal is named. But Watergate is, of course, an umbrella term which encompasses a whole range of illegal and controversial activities at, undertaken. And part of it involved campaign finance. So the Nixon campaign accepted illegal corporate contributions in the 1972 election campaign. And when that came to light, Congress decided to act. So in 1974, it passed a sweeping overhaul of the Federal Election Campaign Act, which gave birth to the modern campaign finance system. Uh, And at that core of that system is a concern that presidents, senators, House members, candidates for federal office will uh, are at the risk of either corruption or the appearance of corruption if they accept donations in large amounts. And so initially, donations to federal candidates for office were limited to $1,000 per election. Uh, And that would be changed in 2002 and then be indexed to rise over time. So now in the 2024 cycle, you could give $3,300 to President Biden, former President Trump, any other presidential candidate um, for the nominating cycle and then again for the general election. And the idea is that members of Congress didn't want presidents or other federal officials to be beholden to large donors. They said if presidents have to raise millions, tens of millions, now hundreds of millions of dollars, but they have to do it in amounts in the low thousands, they'll have to find lots of donors to reach out to. And they won't then be beholden to any particular donor. So that was the logic underpinning the system. The system also included a public funding uh, campaign or rather program for the presidency, not for Congress, but just for the presidency. It's optional. Uh, Candidates and presidents could opt into the program, receive public money, and in exchange, they had to limit their spending. And that was a key part of presidential campaigns for a couple of decades after the Watergate reforms, the post-Watergate reforms. But now the public financing program doesn't offer enough money to run a sufficient campaign, so candidates no longer take it. But that's um, the core of the system, contribution limits combined with public funding. But there's a view of campaign finance that money in politics is often like water running downhill. And if you stop at one place, it will find someplace else to go. So if you look at the last half century, you have seen repeated efforts to regulate money in campaigns and new groups popping up, existing groups finding loopholes, finding ways to raise money in larger amounts to more efficiently accept large contributions, which in turn raises concerns about corruption. You have efforts at reform and and the cycle continues. So it's a bit of a disjointed system that we've ended up with. And it doesn't really look that much like the system that was designed after Watergate. Uh, and we can talk about why or how, if, if that's a thing. Yeah. And, and you say that, you know, if somebody were to build the system from the ground up today in 2023, this is not what they would do. Um, because it is, it is kind of jerry-rigged and, and complicated and fragmented uh, as it, as it's supposed to work. Um, but I did, before we sort of move on to more of that, um, more in depth about what the book is about, um, the issue with regard to money and politics is perennial. 
Um, and so it, the the design in the post Watergate period was to create a system that would avoid corruption or the appearance of corruption. Um, and so part of what you know you're sort of talking about with regard to the way the system has evolved is that neither of those things really happen. Is that correct? Sure, because the the piece of the system we haven't talked about yet is that now while parties and campaigns are tightly regulated in terms of the amounts of money they can accept, you have legally independent groups, uh, super PACs are the most prominent, but there are a range of similar groups that fall under different provisions of the tax code when they're organized uh, that are technically independent of campaigns and parties, but are in practice closely allied with campaigns and parties. And these groups can accept unlimited donations. So you really do have a disjointed system that no one would have designed from the ground up because if in now, as we record in late 2023, you wanted to donate to President Biden or former President Trump, you could only give them $3,300 to their campaign committee for the primaries, another $3,300 for the general election. But if you had the desire and the wherewithal, you could write a million dollar check, a $5 million check, a $10 million check to a super PAC that is clearly supporting one of those candidates for the presidency. So you have a system where presidents are pressured to spend a lot of time raising money that they can control because they can direct how their campaign committees spend money. They can't direct how super PACs spend money, but they're run by close allies who are clearly part of the team. Uh, And so you have you have a system that just doesn't fit well together. And and the super PACs themselves and the other groups that are aligned, say, with a, not not legally aligned, but aligned with a candidate. We just had, I, I think, the example um, with Governor DeSantis um, and, and, a, and a super PAC that was sort of made a public memo of how he should operate. So they're not coordinating but the super PAC is saying something to the governor. Is that correct? This is under the umbrella of how this works. Yes, absolutely. So there are ways in which campaigns and super PACs are allowed to work together legally, but there is a clear and strong prohibition on coordinated communications. So if I am running for president and you are running my super PAC and I call you up and suggest what ads you run, someone could go to jail. Um, But if... I post on Twitter that I think a particular message is effective for my campaign and you happen to see that tweet or or on X now, um, as it is called, then you can act on that information. So you tend to have campaigns and super PACs sending smoke signals to each other in public, in full view, because that's the way they can communicate without risking legal jeopardy. Uh, so yeah, it, it's an odd situation. And and so this is the this is the landscape that we currently are in. Um, but as you note, you know, this sort of came out of Watergate, and this came out of sort of the the impetus to try to clean up money in politics. And at the same time, of course, we've had many many iterations of of forms of regulation of money in politics. Um, but in terms of the data set that you put together. I'd like to just talk about that for a moment, because as you note um, in your introduction, but also in the book, you're really interested in this intersection 
of, um, you know, how a president governs once they're in office, but also how they campaign. Um, and in terms of fundraising, most political scientists and scholars who study this often separate these two things out. Like there's the group of campaign election scholars, and then there's the group of presidency scholars. Um, and, and sometimes the twain will meet, but not always. Um, but you have written a book that is really about sort of how those two things mesh together. Can you give the listeners a kind of overview thesis of what you're finding and an idea of how we reconceptualize this, if you will. Yes, thank you. So I make the case that presidential fundraising is a frequently used but underexamined and little understood tool of modern presidential leadership. So every modern president, every president is trying to bring the country closer to their view of the more perfect union, whatever that might be. And they have all sorts of tools for doing so. They work with Congress. They issue executive orders, they give speeches, and political scientists have looked at all sorts of different tools of presidential leadership. But one thing presidents do that hasn't been examined as much is how much they raise money for themselves and for their fellow party members. And most studies of money in politics focus understandably on the amounts of money raised uh, and spent by campaigns. Uh, And if anyone listening ever runs for office, you will find that you need to hire a campaign treasurer Because federal law requires that you submit to the Federal Election Commission detailed reports of where you got your money and what you spent it on. And these reports are made public, and scholars and journalists feast on these reports um, and dive on in. I look at campaign finance from a different lens. The president's time is a president's scarcest resource. And White House aides from administration after administration will attest that there are more important things that a president could be doing than a president has the time to do. In the Bush White House, George W. Bush, they scheduled the president's time in five-minute increments because they didn't want any, you know, blocks of dead time. You have a 15-minute meeting and it ends, you know, after eight minutes, then that's extra time that you could use for something else. So if you want to understand what a president prioritizes, look at how that president spends his time and someday her time. So what I did was I built by examining presidential schedules, presidential speeches, news accounts, uh, White House press secretary accounts, other documents put out by the White House, a whole range of sources, is I built a data set of the time presidents spend attending fundraisers. So the, um, and presidents over time have devoted more and more time to fundraising as campaign costs have increased, as the campaign finance landscape has shifted. And presidents very much respond to the rules of the system. The rules of the system create the incentive for presidents to spend a lot of time fundraising, because of the desire to avoid corruption and the appearance of corruption. And presidents fundraise for themselves, and this often gets the most attention, but presidents over the past half century have actually spent more time fundraising for fellow party members than for themselves. Uh, And so they're also spending a lot of time as fundraiser-in-chief, but also party leader-in-chief as they try to help fellow Democrats and Republicans to win office. And, and so this is, this is what you are looking at in terms of this data set that you have put together. Um, and obviously, given your previous work, which was, you know, where do presidents go when they're visiting places? Um, how much time do they spend traveling to other parts of the country as opposed to being in the White House, say, um, or going to Israel, as the most recent president has done recently? Um, so 
what did you pull together most specifically in terms of the data for this set without getting too far into the weeds um, that makes it also unique and useful? Yeah. So there was no record of how much time presidents spend at fundraisers. So I would go through speech by speech, get the schedule day by day and cross-check what I was finding against what the White House press secretary was saying, against Associated Press articles about presidential fundraising, year after year, decade after decade. It was definitely a character-building exercise. (laughs) Um, And part of this was flowed from a desire to say something new. Um, So I... Not necessarily, you know, a young scholar any longer, but when I started this, I was. And I, when you think of the decades of informed scholarship and commentary on the presidency, I was looking at presidential leadership and think, what do I have to contribute that is new and different? And one way I thought that I could contribute something new and different was if I generated data that, you know, didn't exist previously that shed light on something important that presidents do. Um, So, and as you know, and as I'm sure a lot of our listeners know, any data gathering exercise is a labor of love. And so, so there's, um, if you had told me at the start, all of the sources I would have to check and cross-check to, to suss out all the closed press fundraisers, the ones that aren't in the public papers, the ones that are not open to the media, uh, I don't know if at the beginning of the project I would have you know, <laughs> happily embarked on the road, but it was one thing after another. And it's a fascinating insight into how presidents you know, spend their time and how they try to you know, win elections for themselves and for the people who can help them govern. And, and so what you have in, in your work is not only this, this massive da- data set, as you've noted, but you're also looking at a historical trajectory um, of presidents over time. Obviously, Jimmy Carter being the first one after the new laws and regulations were implemented. Um, but then we have, you know, and he was only a one-term president. Um, and so then, but then we have Ronald Reagan, who, you know, had the opportunity and was able to come into office with a Senate that was um, Republican for the first time in, as you know, 25 years, I think. Um, And then we have, of course, Bill Clinton, who is the first Democratic president who loses a majority in the House for 45 years. Um, So what can you tell us about what you saw over time in terms of changes in the way that presidents spend their time in this area? Absolutely. It's a great question. So over time, fundraising has really fundamentally changed. It has escalated. It has become far more complicated. It has become far more nationalized. So chapter two of the book starts off with Jimmy Carter, who led off his reelection fundraising in 1980. And his fundraising kickoff was delayed because of the Iran hostage crisis. But when he finally attended fundraisers, he did two in a day, and you could pay $150 to get into one and $250 to get into the other. By the time we get to President Trump, the highest um, entrance fee for a Trump re-election fundraiser I found was $290,300. So you have seen a fundamental transformation in just this in the scope of fundraising in the amount of dollars involved in the frequency presidents fundraise far more 
than they used to. Um, it has become far more nationalized, that presidents now fundraise much more for their national party committees than they do for individual candidates. And this is all part of the arms race. It's all part of the rising costs of campaigns, that if you look at cycle after cycle, money spent in campaigns, it's like a ratchet. Uh, it goes up and it goes up and it goes up. Uh, and the assumption is always that it will take more money to win the next time than it took in the previous campaign. So you have seen presidents adapt to new rules. The rules have changed at several points over the last half century. Most recently, as super PACs have come onto the scene, they have come to use creative joint fundraising committees with their party, with national party committees and state party committees that let them raise money in increments in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. So that Trump fundraiser, that was $290,300 per person. The, the first 2,800 of that, which was the limit in 2020, went to his reelection campaign. Then the next chunk went to the Republican National Committee and the rest was split out and it went $10,000 each to a large range of state parties. And then those state parties often transfer that money right back to the National Committee, um, which is controversial but legal. Uh, and Democrats do it too. President Biden uh, has his own joint fundraising committee. Trump had Trump victory. Biden has the Biden victory fund. Hillary Clinton had the Hillary victory fund. Obama had the Obama victory fund. And they, these modern presidents now, to keep up with super PACs, to keep up with rising costs, they headline these events where donations are then distributed to different party committees and then often centralized in the hands of the national committee in an effort to help the president's campaign. So it's a whole different world than the world that Jimmy Carter confronted back um, after he was elected in 1976, when he was seeking re-election in 1980. And, and so part of what you talk about also is the fact that the presidents in this period of time have had not majorities in the House or the Senate, which becomes a really important component to their connection to fundraising in order to try to get to that. Can you talk a little bit about how the um, insecure majorities um, is part of the dynamic here? Definitely. So insecure majorities is the, was the name of a book by Frances Lee, who's a political scientist at Princeton. And she talks about how we are in this era where political power changes hands quite often. Um, and as you said earlier, when Republicans won the Senate in 1980. It was the first time they had won the Senate since the 1954 midterms. And Democrats held the House from 1954 to 1994. And so Democrats had a long-term dominance of Congress that was upset first in the Senate in the 80s and then in the House in the 90s. If you look at recent elections, in the last eight presidential elections, the American people in there have have voted to change party control of the White House, the House, and the Senate in seven of the past eight federal elections. Uh, the only one in which they did it was 2012, when they returned Republicans to a majority in the House, Democrats to a majority in the Senate, and President Obama back to the White House. And in this era, when you have a majority in Congress as a president, you should expect that it won't last very long. And president after president has come in with their party in control of one or both chambers of Congress only to see that majority disappear. 
So we just, President Biden had unified control of the House and the Senate, his party did for the first two years, and then lost the House in 2022. President Trump had the exact same dynamic, lost, had both chambers under his party's control, lost the House in 2018. President Obama came in with unified party control, lost the House in 2010, lost the Senate in 2014, uh, and on and on. So presidents often know that they want to make hay while the sun shines. They want to do as much as they can with the majority while they have it. And what can they do to try to either win back a majority or mitigate their losses? They can fundraise because the president is the most powerful and in-demand fundraiser in the American political system. Even an unpopular president is able to raise money in amounts that are really helpful for House candidates, Senate candidates, um, candidates for governor's races all across the country. And so they're, they're in demand. And then presidents make strategic choices about how they spend their time. Do they help Senate races? Do they help in House races? Do they help in um, gubernatorial contests and so on? Um, and the strategic calculations they make are fascinating. Tell us a little bit about those strategic calculations. <laughs> yeah. So over time, presidents have spent more time fundraising for their own reelection in first, the third and fourth years. And as they've spent more time doing that, that is actually crowded out helping fellow party members when they themselves are seeking a second term. Um, recent presidents have started their own reelection fundraising earlier and earlier in their third year in office. Um, President Trump broke from precedent, and he started fundraising on June 28th of his first year in office, uh, fundraising for his re-election committee, that is. Um, and that meant that in his first two years in office, when fellow Republicans were clamoring for him to raise money for House races and Senate races uh, and more, yes, he did that, but he was also raising money for himself. Uh, and so you, you have attention. Usually presidents focus on themselves more in years three and four, uh, at the and do less for fellow party members in in recent presidencies, but with President Trump, that crept into years one and two as well. When president, yeah, oh no, please. Uh, when presidents aren't on the ballot themselves, they focus a lot on their national committees, um, and then Senate races tend to be their biggest priority. And so much of the president's agenda depends on the Senate, um, from nominations to treaties and more. They spend less time on House races, although you you know the tension between the Senate and the House is as old as the Republic and the Constitution. Um, but and there's there's a healthy rivalry between the House and the Senate. When it comes to presidential fundraising, it's not a close rivalry. The Senate tends to win presidential aid much more often than the House. Um, and it being a smaller body with a hundred senators, you can do more to influence majority control by helping in a pivotal Senate race than you can by helping in a pivotal House race. Uh, governor's races are fascinating. They don't get as much attention um, as Senate races or House races, and that's increasingly so over time. The earlier presidents of the modern era spent more time helping governors, and not coincidentally, a lot of them were former governors. So the former governors Carter, Reagan, uh, Clinton, and George W. Bush all devoted a good amount of time to helping governors in their first two years in office, um, where uh, whereas Obama and Trump did not. The um, governors' races are particularly consequential right before a round of redistricting. And if you look back at 1990, the first President Bush went all in on governors' races as he was trying to help fellow Republicans capture state houses so that they could shape the redistricting process 
which would then help their congressional prospects. And you could see how it played out when uh, Republicans captured the majority in the House in 1994 for the first time in 40 years. That was in part because Bush helped um, California Governor Pete Wilson win um, in the governor's race in 1990. So there, there are all sorts of you know, chain reaction effects um, that spring from president's decisions about who to help, what kind of contests to help, which candidates to help, and so on. And and you do talk a lot about, you know, some of the novelty that um, President Obama, when he was a candidate, in terms of not taking the um, the federal funds. Um, but there is also a lot of criticism of Obama with regard to perhaps not paying as much attention to the cascading impact of um, state level races. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that, you know, sort of connects to the broader discussion of campaigner in chief? Yes. So there are two important pieces to what you said. One was President Obama became the first candidate when he was then Senator Obama in 2008 to opt out of public funding at both the nominating stage and the general election stage. George W. Bush had opted out of nominating money in 2000, and then again in 2004, and Obama opted out of both in 2008. Uh, and as we said earlier, when you take public funding, you get taxpayer money. And if you've ever done your own taxes, you can check that little box saying, do you want to donate $3 to the presidential election campaign fund? This is where the money goes to this uh, public funding program. But the amount of money offered has not kept up with the rising cost of campaigns. So then candidate Obama opted out in 2008. Uh, John McCain stayed in the public funding system for the general election, was vastly outspent in the closing months of the campaign, and then no major party candidate since has taken public funding. So listeners may think public funding you know, is a good use of taxpayer dollars or not. If we were having this conversation a couple of decades ago, we'd be talking about it as a core bedrock element of how to run a successful presidential campaign, um, but it's fallen by the wayside because it doesn't offer enough resources to, to run a viable campaign. In terms of President Obama's focus on down-ballot races, the Democrats had a really bad midterm election in 2010. And that, from their perspective, was a terrible time to have a bad midterm election because it did precede the redistricting that happens every 10 years following the decennial census. And President Obama himself has said that he was came into office and he was dealing with a recession that he was trying to prevent from becoming a depression. And he said that he couldn't deal with all the problems of governing while also fully committing himself to being the party leader, the fundraiser, the campaigner um, that might have put his fellow Democrats in a better position in down ballot races in the 2010 terms, uh, which taps into the fundamental tension of presidents fundraising. They are criticized when they fundraise for not doing their job. Uh, and again, a president only has so much time. There are only so many important things a president can focus on and can attend to. And President Obama later expressed regret that he hadn't done more to focus on fundraising, to focus on helping fellow party members in the 2010 midterms. And when he left, left office, he said in his post-presidency, he was going to focus more on helping the Democratic Party at the state level. Um, and some post-former presidents stay involved in politics and fundraising, uh, and some, some do so far less. But that has been one thing he's focused on. Uh, and and so I also wanted to ask you about this terminology that you use throughout the book and that links into the way that 
presidential fundraising and the role of the president in nationalizing fundraising, you use a term called ATM states. Um, and, and I think we saw a lot of this in 2020 um, of candidates for president going to states where they had no chance of, say, picking up those electoral college votes. But they went to those states because there was access to funds um, or places, Washington, D.C. not being a state. Um, so can you talk about how this is also a new dynamic within presidential fundraising? Yes, definitely. So if you look back on, say, Ronald Reagan's fundraising back in the 80s, he would travel around the country. He would fly to, say, Montana. And while in Montana, he would hold a fundraiser for the senator from Montana who was seeking re-election. He would fly to Texas and he would hold a fundraiser for the candidate looking to be governor of Texas. Presidents used to fly around the country and hold fundraising events for local candidates from the states they visited. Increasingly, what we've seen is as part of the nationalization of fundraising, presidents don't do that. Instead, they do much more fundraising. Instead of for individual candidates in specific places, they fundraise a lot more for national party committees. Uh, and there are multiple reasons. They There are higher contribution limits to a national party committee. So you can hold an event where donors can give tens of thousands of dollars to the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee or the Republican Corresponding Committee. But if they were holding an event for an individual senator, they'd only be able to give a few thousand dollars. So the, um, but what you saw by the time you get to President Obama's presidency is he's flying around the country and not going to the states where the key races are, but instead going to big major metropolitan areas and holding fundraisers for national beneficiaries you know, and then leaving. And the money doesn't stay there to benefit candidates in the state. They go, the money's funneled to competitive races around the country. Uh, and people in these states don't like it. Uh, and they call them ATM states. Uh, down in Texas, they called it a bag drag, that presidents come here and drag the bag and take all the cash and they leave. Um, and they complain about this lots of places, but especially in, in New York and California and Illinois, places with big cities with lots of donors, but that often have you know less competitive races. So presidents are spending less time fundraising for specific candidates in places tied um, that have ties to those candidates, it can be politically convenient. There are times when an unpopular president can raise lots of money. And if you're, say, Mary Landrieu, who is a Democrat from Louisiana, senator from a state in which President Obama wasn't that popular, having him come down to Louisiana to fundraise for her wouldn't necessarily be helpful from a public relations perspective. But if President Obama goes to Chicago and holds a fundraiser for the National Senate Campaign Committee, who then distributes those funds to the Landrieu campaign, then she can benefit without having to you know, take the heat of standing alongside an unpopular president. Uh, my favorite example of this was just in the Biden administration at when Raphael Warnock in the 2022 midterms was looking to run for a full term after winning you know, the last two years of a Senate term in 2020. So President Biden narrowly carried Georgia, of course, in 2020, um, and his popularity is not as high now as it was then. So there are a lot of questions. Would Biden campaign for Warnock? And he did hold a fundraiser to directly benefit Warnock's campaign, but he held it up in Boston, um, which 
is a place where there are plenty of donors who are excited to you know, support Raphael Warnock and try to maintain a Democratic Senate majority. And Biden was able to go up there, use his clout, his prowess as fundraiser in chief to raise money for the Warnock campaign without having to go to Georgia and stand next to the senator and put an arm around him. Um, there was an example in the Obama years, President Obama in 2014 held a fundraiser for Senator Utah, Udall of Colorado. And Obama too had won Colorado, but was far less popular in 2014. The event was in Colorado. Senator Udall stayed in Washington. He said he had to vote on one of President Obama's cabinet nominees and that the business of Colorado and the Senate came first. Uh, it was not a close vote. It was not a contentious vote. The um, cabinet nominee was approved with a bipartisan majority. And there were all sorts of headlines saying like, Udall takes Obama's cash, but doesn't want to be seen with him, uh, which, which is probably accurate. Um, but presidents are like this. They are they can raise lots of money, but it's often not politically advantageous to do it in certain states with certain candidates. Uh, and so fundraising in ATM states, going fundraising for the National Committee and redistributing the money can be an effective way to deal with this political problem. And since this is the new dynamic of, of sort of accumulating money for the, the Senate, the Democratic or Republican Senate com- campaign committee or the party itself, as opposed to necessarily sort of having a fundraiser, as you say, for Mary Landrew in Louisiana, that this is now becoming much more normalized. It definitely is. And it changes dynamics between the White House and the Congress. So I have done some research at various presidential libraries, and I found some a fascinating exchange of letters and memos in the Reagan library about Pennsylvania Senator John Hines, who really wanted Reagan to come and hold a fundraiser for him in Philadelphia. And the White House staff recommended he not do it. And Hines had other Republican senators intervene and write to the White House and say, President Reagan really needs to do this if we're going to have a good working relationship between Republicans in the Senate and the president. Reagan himself wrote back and said, I will choose for whom I campaign. Thank you very much. And Hines wrote the White House and said, when your last name is Hines, because he was heir to the catch-up fortune, he said, people think you don't need help fundraising, but I do. And this is a problem I have to deal with every day. Reagan eventually did hold a fundraiser for him. Hines was likely very grateful. There was a whole lot of you know back and forth about this. And when you think about you know the Reagan White House's relationship with John Hines, you know when they needed him on a key vote, would he remember this fundraiser? Like the odds are that he would. When you have presidents fundraising for national party committees, you don't have those individual relationships that are fostered in the same way between presidents and legislators. So. Um, and you could say that's for better or for worse, but it's definitely different. I mean, some might say it's better because then you don't have presidents trying to curry favor by fundraising directly for uh, for members of Congress. Um, although they are asking for money from people who are then writing very large checks, right? So there's there's that side of the of the debate, and that's the the final chapter of the book is about the controversial aspects of of this whole dynamic. Um, and you go through a number of different components because it's not just one. Um, so can you can you give us a little bit of an overview of what is considered to be the controversial aspects? Sure. <laughs> Gladly. And there are there are many. Um, so we talked about how this whole system was set up to avoid corruption of the appearance of corruption. Um, And in the book, I make the case that the appearance of corruption now abounds because, yes, you can only give a few thousand dollars to a presidential candidate, but you can give 
any amount you would like, as long as you're able to, millions of dollars to a supportive super PAC. And so the idea that um, we are effectively limiting you know, the, the role of money in campaigns um, isn't borne out by our current disjointed system. Um, there are controversies about special access and special privileges for donors. And this has played out in presidency after presidency, where donors are invited to the White House. They are given you know, time with the president in really small sessions that a lot of people would love to have. In the Clinton administration, they controversially invited donors to sleep over at the White House in the Lincoln bedroom which led to accusations that the Lincoln bedroom was for sale. The Clinton folks said that their donor rewards program corresponded in every significant detail with every administration's donor rewards program going back to Eisenhower. Um, but the Lincoln bedroom you know, benefit for donors was one that got a lot of people's attention. So, and when you give special access to donors, when presidents spend more time with donors, again, they only have so much time and it does limit their access to ordinary Americans. And when... President Trump went to South Dakota, a place where he had a lot of political support. One paper there wrote a plaintiff editorial saying, President Trump, you don't have any events scheduled with regular South Dakotans, uh, and you really should. These are people who support you. These are people who can't afford to write a check to be in a private room with you, but they really want to see you. Um, President Obama had a similar complaint lodged against him in California because he would fly out to California, go to fundraiser, 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 one quick public event perhaps, you know, and then leave. Um, and so when you're spending the president's scarce time meeting with high dollar donors, you that's time you could be spending you know, meeting with ordinary Americans. Um, as we said, presidents who fundraise are accused of neglecting the job to which they were elected. They have a very demanding day job. And it is always the other party who criticizes them for neglecting the important work of the presidency to focus on their role as fundraiser in chief. It's situational criticism. There, each party is very vocal about this when it's the other party's president who's in the White House. Um, you, the taxpayer, dear listeners, um, fund presidential travel for fundraising. There is a formula that requires campaigns to pay for part of the cost of presidential travel when the president is campaigning, but the formula is fairly opaque and much of the cost of a president traveling around the country to campaign is still borne by the taxpayer. Um, and that's in part for a very good reason. The president is always president. The president's always on the clock. The president is always accompanied by a military aide carrying what's called the nuclear football so the president can respond to a crisis at a moment's notice, has secure communications equipment, has national security advisors at all times with him and someday with her. Um, and while a president is always on the job, there's um, – there are always controversies about just who pays for fundraising. Um, President Trump had a controversy that had not come up before, personally profiting from fundraisers that were held at properties he owns. Uh, President Trump held fundraiser after fundraiser at his own properties, at the hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., at his various properties in Florida and New Jersey and other places. And campaign finance law says that campaigns have to pay market, market rates for a you know, fundraising venue, if they would charge other people, they can't just not charge you because otherwise that would be you know, a, an illegal campaign contribution. So, uh, And there's all sorts of reporting that fellow Republicans would schedule their events at Trump properties because they believed that the president would be more likely to attend if it was at a property he owned. Uh, and of course, the campaign finance law that required 
campaigns to pay Trump properties you know, ended up you know, benefiting the president himself financially, which is not something that we had seen before uh, and not something that we've seen since. Uh, so there are all sorts of controversies. It's one more and then I'll, I'll let it be. The um, fundraising against governing partners. It's really tricky to work with members of Congress of the other party and then go out and fundraise for the people who want to defeat them. Um, and I talk in the book about President Bush going to South Dakota, where the Democratic leader at the time was Tom Daschle. And he held an event with Tom Daschle you know, and praised him, talked about how much he appreciated working with him. And then he went to a fundraiser um, for a guy trying to win the other Senate seat in South Dakota, a, who would, if successful, help kick Daschle out of his job as Senate Majority Leader. Um, Democrats complained about this when Reagan did it, Republicans did when Obama did it. These are perennial bipartisan issues that when you have presidents who are campaigning, it can undermine efforts to work across the aisle and govern. So um, we have a new Speaker of the House, and one thing he'll have to do is fundraise. Uh, there was just a report today that uh, Speaker Johnson has, in his career, raised $5 million because he's from a safe seat in northern Louisiana former Speaker McCarthy raised more than three times that just in the last quarter. So one thing the new Speaker will do is not only drive the legislative agenda, but travel around the country fundraising for fellow Republicans. And he will be doing that while at the same time trying to work with a Senate and a White House that are controlled by the other party. So these dynamics play out across you know, the House, the Senate, and the White House. And so now that you have you know amassed this amazing data set and um, analyzed it in this book. What are you working on now, Brendan? What more is there to find out about campaign finance and the presidency? Good good question. There's um, as much as many things made it in the book, there are unanswered questions. I'm continuing to track President Biden's fundraising and there are additional questions about the the strategies presidents use when they fundraise. They're um, that I'm diving into, but I'm also working on a book project on consequential presidential elections and how, um, uh, so stepping a bit away from the money and politics angle. Uh, But once I've put so much effort into this project, it it seems kind of silly to to stop following it as the data keeps going. And as, um, as people I've talked to through the years as I wrote this book know, I originally thought that I would wrap this up at the end of the Obama years, Um, but, President Trump's fundraising was new and distinctive, and there was more to say and more to talk about. So there needed to be a point where I cut it off. So I cut it off after the 2020 election. Um, But these dynamics keep shifting, uh, and there is much more to evaluate. So I'm going on on two tracks. I'm continuing to extend extend the research on presidential fundraising um, and working on another book project as well. And we'll see which ends up taking more of my scarce time. Because like like presidents, professors' scarcest resource is their time as we juggle you know, teaching and everything else. That, that so. is absolutely true. Um, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today about fundraiser-in-chief, presidents, and the politics of campaign cash. Um, I know this is available at the University Press of Kansas website. Is there a brick-and-mortar store to which you would like to give a shout-out? Sure. I live not far from politics and prose in Washington, D.C., and I was delighted when I went in and found one single copy on the shelf. So I um, can't guarantee it'll be there if, if listeners go there, but maybe they go there and buy it, then politics and prose would uh, would get more copies. Or I'm sure but they yes, can order uh, one if they're out of it. Right. Yes, certainly. <laughs> so um, so if, 
If you're interested in finding the book, supporting a local brick and mortar bookstore is a wonderful thing to do. Um, and you can also order directly from the publisher because university presses like the University of Press of Kansas you know, appreciate that. As yes, well. they do. So. Um, so I would like to thank Brendan Doherty for joining me today to talk about Fundraiser in Chief. Please find it at your local brick and mortar store or um, at the University Press of Kansas. Thank you so much for coming today, Brandon. Excellent. Thank you, Lily. I really appreciate your having me. And it's a terrific conversation. So thank you so much.